I was leaving work this morning and I don't know what I think sometimes when I leave to come here because I grab a pen. I grabbed some sticky notes. I don't know what I'm going to write down while I'm up here, but you never know. And got some, some extra clips because I'm extra nervous today. So I've got some things to keep my hands busy and to play with. And I, it totally reminded me, I have, this, I have this memory of my daughter, Bahama, because she loves it when I talk about her. Um, when she was little, anywhere we would go, she was ferociously independent. She still is. And she'd always want to pack for herself. And anytime we went anywhere, I would go back in her room and I'd go through the bag and there was always like every pair of underwear she owned and a bathing suit. And I'd be like, what do you think? She goes, you never know. That was just always, you never know. You never know when that pool's going to open or whatever. So I think about, I'm grabbing all my stuff this morning. You just never know when you're going to need a sticky note up here. So I was grabbing all my stuff. So she gets that from me, I guess. Well, I hope you guys had a wonderful break. I don't know if you had snow or you didn't. We have had some crazy weather. Um, but I'm excited to be back from our, our break week this week. And <sighs> I don't know about you guys, but I am in a super busy time of life right now. Um, we're getting ready for the auction, which let me just say again, come. I hope you come. We're going to have a really fun time. Um, it's a special night to watch the Lord pour his blessing out on women's ministry. Um, and it's fun. Today is my grandson Noah's first birthday. And we're having a party on Saturday. And I, I do the most ridiculous things to myself. I've decided I'm going to teach myself how to pipe out a Monsters, Inc. cake because that's his theme, Monsters, Inc. So I want to make this smash cake of Sully and it's going to be blue hair and purple. Can I frost? No. Am I creative? No. Am I going to, uh, have I decided to teach myself to make a Monsters, Inc. cake? I have. And how is that going, you may ask? Well, I took the butter out of the refrigerator to do a practice run last week, and it's still sitting on the counter. I think it's probably soft enough today. So um, I will be finding a bakery this afternoon to make us a smash cake, I'm pretty sure. <sighs> after the auction, just a couple days after the auction, I leave for Israel. I'm trying to get my crazy work life in order before I am completely unavailable for 10 days. My oldest is getting married in April, and then the retreat. I have a new baby coming, hopefully after the retreat. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have a bridal shower, wedding menus, a baby shower to plan, and last night I was devastated when I pulled up to my house, and since I'm teaching today, everything distracts me. I pulled in front of my house, and I thought, my Christmas lights are still up. <sighs> and if I'm going to be completely honest, my Christmas tree is still laying on its side, waiting to be pulled out to the street. But I have been giving myself grace to have those things done before March 1st. <laughs> Don't look at the calendar. <laughs> oh, so this morning on my way to work, I, I felt very overwhelmed this morning. I had a picture of my sweet grandbaby who's one. And I don't know, I was just, I was overwhelmed and tearful. 
which isn't unusual for me. I'll cry about anything. But I'm leaving for work and I'm just praying and thanking the Lord for the beautiful mess <laughs> that is my life. I wouldn't change a thing. And I pulled into work and it was still a little dark out and it was early. I have pulled into that parking lot hundreds and hundreds of times I've been pulling in. And I, I'm a creature of habit, so I like to park in the same spot. And I feel a little grumpy when somebody's in my spot. But this morning, I got right in my spot. I think actually the people see that I'm not in my spot yet and take it on purpose because they know I've been parking there every day. Anyways, so I pull into that spot and I just sit, finish praying with the Lord, praying. And I look up and I see a house I've never really noticed before. And all I can see is their Christmas tree twinkling in their big front room window. <laughs> and I thought, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay that my lights are still up. It's okay that my tree is still laying there. I might just pull that thing back in because the cold weather and rain have revived it. So. <laughs> oh. But I can't tell you why. I have no idea why. This morning, that just brought me peace and comfort. Um, so that had nothing to do with the study. I just want to share my morning with you. So... It's like you are with me now. Oh, let's pray. Father God, we just come before you this morning. And oh, Father, I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for the beautiful things and the messy things and the easy things and the hard things. Lord, I'm thankful for you for the things that you do in our life to grow us and change us and make us more like you. I thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to be together, Lord, as we just come and hear your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would pour your word out on us this morning. I know I need a fresh touch from you this morning, Lord, and, and I just pray that for all of us, for those of us who know we need a fresh touch, and for those of us who don't know we need a fresh touch, but we need that fresh touch, Lord, that you would just give it to us, Father God. We love you, Lord, your mighty name. Amen. Today, we're going to look at two men. First, we're going to look at the conversion of Saul, which is so important that Luke chooses to chronicle it three different times throughout the book of Acts. So a few weeks ago, in chapter 7, verse 58, we were introduced to a young man named Saul. And at that time, they were coming and laying their coats at his feet as they were on their way to brutally murder Stephen for his, for, for his sermon that he had given. In chapter 8, we see that Saul was not simply a bystander, but he was in full support of the stoning of Stephen, and that something in him seemed to have ignited on that day, and in so many of them, and a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And it says in, in the first part of, verse, uh, of chapter 8 that all except for the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. We quickly realized beyond the shadow of a doubt that this was not just some bystander arbitrarily mentioned in chapter 7. This man is nothing arbitrary. Saul studied under, I can't say his name right, Gamaliel. In my head, I call him Gargamel. And so I had to be really careful not to come and call him Gargamel. Then I tell you my secret that I tell myself, do not call him Gargamel. So... <laughs> 
Gamaliel, <laughs> where, he in no, where in no doubt he had in-depth studies of the law. Saul is well-educated. He is well-equipped. He is a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, and he is zealous for God and for the law. Pastor Doug described him as devout and immoral by the standards of which he lived. Saul would have been respected for his position and station in life. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says of himself as Saul, that if someone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, he had more. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He is of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And in regard to the law, oh, he's a Pharisee. He's got it down. As for zeal... He had so much zeal for God, he persecuted the church. As for righteousness, if there was righteousness based on law, he would be faultless. Pastor Doug described him as a poster boy, a real eagle scout for the religious elite. Saul had his sights set on stopping these Jesus people from spreading what he believed was heresy and lies that dangered the status quo. He did it with everything in his being. He would stop this message of Jesus from getting out one way or another. And maybe he would stop it. Maybe he thought it would have stopped when they cried, crucify him about Jesus and put him to death, but it didn't. Maybe they thought it would stop when the men were whipped into a frenzy and threw that first stone at Stephen. Maybe then the nonsense would stop and the apostles and believers would slink away into the darkness. But what really it did was scatter the people, like blowing the head off a dandelion. Jesus' people moved, armed with the truth, just as Jesus had said to take it out. Verse 1 <clears throat> Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Still breathing threats and murder. We see here that Saul is not losing any momentum in his pursuit of the Jesus people. This is what he lives for now. It's the air he breathes. It's what he's defined by the murderous thoughts that have overtaken him. We see him in the beginning as an observer and then ravaging the church to being completely overtaken. He says this of himself in Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former manner of life, in Judaism, and how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. He didn't say I persecuted them a little. I persecuted them beyond measure. And he tried to destroy it. But we see for all of his efforts, the opposite has happened, has happened and the truth has breached Jerusalem. Crucifying Jesus did not stop the truth from being proclaimed. Going after the apostles did not stop his word from being preached. Their days of shrinking back are over. Persecuting the believers, even door to door, 
did not stop the word from going out. And now it has gone even further than he would have ever imagined it went. Saul has turned into an elite predator. His goal is to devour those who belong to the way, the way of Jesus. And he has set out some 130-ish miles to Damascus to try to contain the problem. Saul is going to get this mess under control. Do you wonder how he is so sure he's right? We know he knows what he knows. But even with all of the evidence, Jesus was crucified. I'm sure he heard the grave was empty. I'm sure he heard he reappeared. There has to be a buzz about all that Jesus has done, said, and, and, and experienced. There's miracles and wonders happening all around him, but still he's positive it's wrong. Jews are coming to faith in big numbers we've seen. And it says even the priests are among the believers. But he is so sure in what he believes about God and the law that he is blinded to the truth. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul's reaction was simply to fall on the ground, which I think is an appropriate reaction considering the circumstances. I too would be flat on the ground. He is traveling in full daylight, but is overcome suddenly by a light brighter than the sun. Something big was happening. And the question audibly, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I love this question because it tells us that Jesus identifies with his people. To persecute or harm a believer is to do it unto Jesus. How we treat one another is how we treat Christ. And that is sobering. Saul was relentless in his pursuit of the believers, simply trying to stop their lies. But Jesus saw that course as a direct attack on him. Jesus is one with his people. Nothing that happens on earth goes unfelt in heaven. Who are you, Lord? Saul is no dummy. He knows this is big. He has to know this is some kind of divine intervention, but, but the answer he simply couldn't imagine. I am Jesus. Can you imagine how Saul felt at this moment? Saul had dedicated the most recent part of his life to the belief that Jesus was not the Son of God, that Jesus was not the Messiah, that Jesus had not returned from the dead, and that all of those who believed this lie must be exterminated. Can you imagine the sobering reality of suddenly being face to face with resurrected Jesus? Now knowing that he is indeed both God and alive, <clears throat> and that he had been very, very wrong. With three words, 
I am Jesus, Saul's world and his theology were turned upside down. Though we're only given a brief account of what happened here, like I said, we will see more as we go on in Acts. We know that there's not only an overwhelming light, but it's Jesus' unveiled glory, brighter than the sun in an audible, in an audible voice. Jesus says in verse 6, But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. Then, then the man who traveled with him <clears throat> stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Can you imagine these poor guys? I was just like, here are these companions of Saul's. Obviously, they're of the same mind because they're going with him to carry out the same destruction that is in Saul's heart. And what on earth <clears throat> did they just experience? Saul's entire way of life has been obliterated. What does he have now? They love the response of Jesus. All right, Saul, but you've done all this stuff, but now get up and go. Go and wait for what's next in your life. Jesus has him and Saul knows it. And what had happened before was but. But now it's time for a new way. Go and wait. Saul's bent, Saul was bent on arresting and bringing the believers to his renegade justice. But instead, he was arrested by Jesus' renegade love on the road to Damascus. And he was shown a mercy and grace. Verse 8. Saul got up from the ground as though his, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. <clears throat> David Guzig said in the three days of blindness and deprivation, Saul was dying to himself. It would only be after the three days of dying that he would receive resurrection life from Jesus. Saul, so shaken by the experience that he was unable to eat or drink for three days. All Saul could do was simply sit in a blind silence. The face of Jesus, can you imagine? Have you ever looked at the sun? You see it flashing in your eyes for too long. Sitting in darkness, I imagine the only thing he can see is that bright light of Jesus burnt in his memory. And we know he prayed because we're going to see that next. So sitting, praying, what a humbling experience, trying to sort out all that he had done and all that he had seen and all that has been happening and all that's going to happen. But we know he was not alone in his silence. We will see that on Ananias' account, Saul had a vision from God. He knew who was coming and he knew why. And he was praying. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to a street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. 
And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief chief priest to bind all who call your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to hear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. After laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight and got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. That is so beautiful and so powerful. And I was struck that Jesus told Ananias that Saul was praying. Because being a Hebrew of Hebrews, Saul would be no stranger to prayer. It was, but, but prayer for Saul was something different. And I'm sure he's never prayed like this before. This was not a formalized prayer, a memorized cookie-cutter devotion of some routine or obligation, but this had to be seeking and desperate prayers of a broken man. God asked Ananias to do something radical, to go to the sworn enemy of the believer of Jesus himself and lay hands on him. Saul even knows he's coming now. It could be a trap. Saul is notorious. He has papers allowing him to persecute. He is a monster in the eyes of the believers. And Ananias, would it would be understandable for him to be reserved. Saul was on his way to Damascus to kill the believers like Ananias. Yet Jesus urges him to go in obedience. God has called Saul to great and mighty things. Jesus is going to use him mightily. Ananias could not have any idea of the impact that Saul would have on the world. Go and pray for him. And he does just that. He does go to Saul. And he does not just go to Saul afraid and withdrawn, but he goes to Saul and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you by the road which you were coming, he has sent me that you may regain your sight to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight and got up and was baptized. I could read that over and over and over. I was listening to a teaching, and he said something that struck me. He said that Ananias was the first experience that Saul would have with Christian fellowship and that he came to him and embraced him as his brother despite. How many times has God asked us to talk to Saul? 
Now, to clarify, I have never been asked to go and talk with somebody whose every life's goal would be to kill me because of my love for Jesus. But he has asked me to go to or to pray with or to reach out to or to have a conversation with or to just simply say, my sister. But God, I say in my reservations, they may reject me. What if they ridicule me? Or worse, what if they don't like me? Ananias was afraid that Saul might very well kill him, but he did follow what Jesus told him to do in obedience. How often do we stop and forget that obedience is better? And to the murderer, he said, my brother... Ananias, who before this week I had never really regarded. But I see him as this giant of the faith. Though we never hear from him again and he disappears just as quickly as he appeared in scriptures. But it was because he was moved in obedience and faithfulness. And he himself allowed God to use him, both men and today, were set apart and used as great instruments for God. We see, we knew, we know that Saul is going to be an instrument for God. But Ananias needed to respond, being willing to be an instrument of God as well, to go, to go to Saul. I never want to miss my opportunity to be used as an instrument of God because I'm hesitant, afraid, or reserved. I will never be a Paul but I can be an Ananias and allow God to use me in that way. So before we close, I want to read a devotion to you um, that I read. And it's kind of long, but I really wanted to share it because I really like it. So there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. That's all we get. We don't have any indication that Ananias had any special education or training we don't know if he was young or old, what he did for a living, or what his family was like. We have no idea whether he was a man of great or little standing in his community. We only know that he was a follower of Jesus, just a regular old disciple that was ready when the Lord called his name, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and his response, here I am, Lord. Get up and go to a street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming to place his hands on him so he can regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority here from chief priests to arrest all who call your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument, and take my name to the Gentile kings of Israel, and I will show you how much he must and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias was understandably a little nervous about the call. He knew this man's reputation. The city was surely already buzzing about this imminent arrival that would happen, and what would happen to the church there. He was apprehensive at best fearful at worst. But when it came to it, he chose to believe in the power and the presence of God, and he went. And his response upon meeting Saul was telling, Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, sent me so that you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Brother, how sweet those words must have been to the ears of the blind man. How he must have perked up when he heard them. This was not the voice of self-importance. This was not the sound of arrogance. This Saul, this Saul knew was a friend. Someone who was indeed sent by Jesus. One who could speak just a little clarity into the ball of confusion that was now Saul's life. We have no record of whether Ananias and Saul became pen pals after that moment. We don't know if Ananias went on to do big things in the church or for the world. For all we know, this man disappeared from Saul's life as he became Paul, the way he disappeared from the pages of scripture. Such is the case with our interactions with others. We are apprehensive. We are fearful. We don't know for sure if we have the right words that can generate impact. We say something, we say some measure of kindness or encouragement or empathy, and then we disappear from someone's life forever, like a vapor in the wind. And there is less than a few lines written about us in the books of history for generations to follow. We will not be called Paul. We will not all be called Paul. We aren't all going to be out in the front lines, the one leading the crowd, the one who is recognized for their impact. But all of us are called to be Ananias. As we live and move as relational beings with other believers, we are meant to push back the darkness and bring light one interaction at a time. We are meant to be looking with expectation for where the sovereign hand of God is positioning us. In doing so, we must, we must approach every single interaction, no matter how common and ordinary it might seem, with the same words that characterize this great supporting character in the biopic of all. Here I am, Lord. I personally fall short, and here I am, Lord. I am comfortable to serve where I serve. I love what Sam had shared last week about not always being, you know, it's hard to be the one to go out. I can't remember. I should have written down what you said. But it's hard to be the one to go out and put yourself out there. It's hard to go out and be the one to witness. But God asks us. I don't know how many times he's asked me to do something, and I've hesitated, and then somebody else did it. He doesn't need me. But he uses me. God could have said to Paul, to Saul, right there at that moment, exactly what he needed from him. He didn't need Ananias to go do anything. But he uses us to affect others around us. And Ananias went, not only did he go, but he laid his hands on the murderer. And he trusted God. And he was used as a catalyst for Jesus. And I think of how often I'm comfortable not being used how often I'm comfortable serving where I'm comfortable and serving with what I want to do. But I want my heart's cry to be, here I am, Lord. In the good, the bad, the ugly, here I am, Lord. I'm going to do what you ask me to do. This morning I was listening to, um, to a teaching, and he was saying at the end that we may never see how we affect those around us, the people we're willing, willing to share and to talk with. Now, I personally am very comfortable at the grocery store. I don't know why. But if you're at the grocery store and I think you need, I'll just talk to you. I'll help you shop. 
I've done it. I love it. It's my favorite. So I'm very comfortable at the grocery store. But walking down the street, I'm not that comfortable. Um, but we never know our impact. So the story he was sharing this morning was, I didn't write down anybody's names, so I'm just going to give you a story about people you don't know. Uh, but it was, I was listening to Skip Hedzik, and um, he said the name of a pastor who shared a message. Uh, he was doing like a special teaching, and he shared the message. And he, he, he has no idea. Every Sunday, Ryan has no idea what we're hearing and how that's going to affect our lives. You know, I sat under a teaching of Pastor Doug. He had no idea the path that it was going to put our lives on as unbelievers. But he shared this message. And then somebody in his church was saved and shared this message. And then he goes to, and then he says, you know, D.L. Moody was, then he was affected by this message taught four or five pastors, all the way down to the pastor who was affected by him leading Billy Graham to Christ. And that this pastor who shared a message that he was nervous about or reserved about led to Billy Graham, who has affected so many lives that we might not ever have the idea. We may, we may never know what that here I am, Lord, is going to spark. And are we willing to? I have to tell you that I was really surprised doing my study because at the end I was like, really, I have been really taken with Ananias I want to be an Ananias. Here I am, Lord. I want to go. I want to go in the face of fear. I want to go in the face of uncertainty. And I want to affect lives for Jesus. Why? Because I'm powerful? No. Why? Because I can do something amazing? No. But because God wants to use me when he doesn't need to. He can do it himself, but he invites me to be part. So, Lord, let our hearts cry be here I am. Let's pray. Father God, I just, I thank you, Lord, that you have included a sinner like me in your plan. That you allow me to be part of your plan, Lord. And please forgive me at times when I may say no, or that my heart may hesitate, or that I decide to wait and see, Lord, and render myself useless in your hands. But Lord, never, Lord, never let that happen again, Lord. Have our answer always be when we hear our name, when you say our name, that we respond, here I am, Lord, not hang on just a minute. I'll get to you. But right now, Lord, here I am. Use us, Father God. And this dark and hurting world, use us, not just outside of these doors, but use us in here, Lord. Use us to come alongside of our brothers and sisters and encourage and build up, Lord. Lord, we thank you for who you are, Father God. I am, I don't even have the words of how grateful I am that you have saved us, Lord. I just pray, Lord, that you use us. Father God, I pray that as we go to our groups and work through these study questions, Lord, and have our conversations of what you taught us, how you spoke to our hearts this week, Lord, that it would just be radical, that our transformation would continue to be radical, Lord, because it's not just a one time you're transforming us every day, Lord. Make us more like you today than we walked in this morning. Have your way with us, Lord. We love you. We praise you in your mighty name. Amen.